Hey everyone, welcome back to The Speaker Speaks. I'm the playwright, Clay Nichols. When I was researching the play, I was lucky enough to travel to Bonham, Texas to meet people that knew the speaker best, men like H.G. Delaney, and to spend time in the basement of the Rayburn Library and Museum listening to oral histories, reading personal letters. It's an unassuming town, Bonham, but as warm and friendly a place as I've ever been. No wonder that's where you could find Mr. Sam whenever Congress was not in session. And it's where we find him at the opening of this act. An honest man does not get rich in politics. But every dollar I have saved has been invested in a little ranch. Well... It's not really big enough to call a ranch, but I'm going to be a ranchman anyhow. I love it out here. There's no feeling in the world like the satisfaction of owning the good earth over which you are treading, none at all. So when Congress adjourns, I hop right on that train and come straight home. I may be old-fashioned for still riding that train, but I tell you what, the two days that it takes to get down here from Washington is the best rest I ever get. Get myself a good Western novel and while the time away. When I do get home, I sit right here on the porch where people can see me. They don't have to strain too hard. US 82 goes right by my door. There's no place I would rather be. People need rocking chairs in their homes. I like to see a man make a decision from a rocking chair. I wish we had more on Capitol Hill, but I am glad to hear that Mr. Kennedy has put a few in the White House. This one is particularly meaningful to me because it belonged to my father. My father was a good man, a quiet and modest man whose political activity began and ended with the war between the states. I do want to emphasize that my father's hatred of the Yankees has been greatly exaggerated. I will say this, there were only two names in that household more onerous than Satan's. They were Judas and Sherman. But my father was a hard-shell Baptist of the foot-washing variety who simply could not hold hatred in his heart. So, later in his life, I think he partly forgave Judas. He was a fine man. He did something once which I have remembered all my life. I was fixing to go to the Mayo College for the first time. I, I didn't ask my father to send me. I asked him to let me go. You need all the hands you can get on a little cotton patch like that. Well, he agreed to let me go. At the station, just before I got on the train, he pressed $25 into my hand and said, Sam, be a man. God knows how he saved that money. It was almost a year's earnings. We made just enough to live, and it broke me up him handed me that $25. I have often wondered what sacrifice he and my mother made beyond those every day demanded. That moment has affected my life as much as any other. You know, when my daddy first came here, this black land belt of North Texas, this land was about as fertile a place as existed. Rich, vegetable-fed, alluvial soil, almost 40 feet deep. But now, 
You drive along and you see that fertile land gutted with ditches. In many places it's been plowed and plowed and wasted into creeks and rivers until the white bedrock shows through. It tears me up to see the old earth looking like that. I guess I feel a kinship with the land because I have lived on a farm all my life. I myself just missed being a tenant farmer by a gnat's whisker. When I was a boy, farming was a hard and lonesome life without most of the conveniences which we enjoy in the city. Mother had to build up a big fire in the fireplace even in July and August and scorch her arms and face putting smoothing irons down there. She would rub her knuckles off on the washboard. You'd trim lamp wicks and have to carry a lamp from one room to another praying you don't fall and burn the house down. We set out to lift the farmer out of the darkness through rural electrification. The big utility companies cried that such a project could not possibly be profitable, but we proved them wrong. Under the Rural Electrification Act, electrical lines were extended to rural areas across the country. It was like a miracle to those people. Nothing can lift up the farm home and take more drudgery off the farm wife than to have the conveniences of rural electrification. I'm mighty proud to say that I was the author of that bill. When I come home to Bonham and I see the farmer's cars parked in the courthouse square, while the women folk walk around window shopping with their children or talking to their neighbors, I'm glad to see it, even if they don't have a dime in their pockets. Loneliness breaks the heart. God help the lonely. Well... I sure wouldn't mind striking a blow for liberty right about now. How about you? I got a bottle of bourbon hidden around here somewhere, but I'm afraid Miss Lou might catch us and give us hell. <laughs> That's my sister, Lucinda Rayburn. Fine woman, just like our mother. Thinks just like a man. I may own this place, but she sure as hell is the boss, and she is not well disposed to the consumption of alcohol on the premises. I suppose you may think that I have been granted all that I have ever wished for. That is not true. I'm an average man, no better, and I hope no worse than the average citizen of this country. I've had my disappointments. What I wouldn't give for a little boy to take fishing with me sometimes. I was married once. In October 1927 I was married. Lord, it was so long ago it doesn't seem as though I was ever married at all. But I was to a Miss Metsy Jones. She was a very beautiful woman, a good deal younger than I. I don't know, sometimes these things just don't work out. I was set in my ways by then, and she was mighty set on changing them. After three months, she left. Sam Houston had a marriage that lasted almost the same period of time. You know, Sam Houston wore a ring all his life, a great gold thing with nothing carved on it. When he died, they took that ring off, and on the inside was inscribed the word, Honor. Oh, hell, I suppose death and divorce are the two greatest deliverances known to man. <laughs> uh, I had something to do here. Uh, oh, here it is. <laughs> Right here on this envelope in my pocket. <laughs> Lyndon likes to give me hell that I run my office out of my back-ass pocket, as he says. Well, 
I've always said that if you always tell the truth, you don't have to have a good memory. But Lyndon, he's got phones all over his desk and all sorts of buttons and gadgets and such. Hell, he even got himself one of those ship-to-shore radio telephones put in his car. Hell, I never got a call so important that it can't wait until I get to my apartment. <laughs> After 47 years in Congress, I have fought so many fights that sometimes I can't even remember them all. But I don't say that I'm tired. If you say that you are tired, you will be tired. And I got no time for that. Forty-seven years. Hmm. Well, I hope that I've got a few more years to serve my generation and my country. They'll carry me out of here with my boots on and my gavel in my hand, God willing. I first came to Washington in the year 1913 after being elected to Congress by the 4th District of Texas for the first time. In that same year, Mr. Woodrow Wilson was inaugurated as president. I remember he gave one hell of a good speech that day. He said, Here muster not the forces of party, but the forces of humanity. Men's hearts wait upon us. Men's lives hang in the balance. Men's hopes call upon us to say what we will do. Woodrow Wilson was one of the greatest intellects that ever sat in the White House. He was a great historian and a great teacher. But personally, he was a cold snake. No, no, no. Snake's not the word. Cold fish. He'd look at you cool and steady through those thick glasses. He was an austere man with an odd look of death about his face. From his eye to his jaw, he had one of the longest faces I ever saw. He was one horse-faced son of a bitch. Well, I had a great deal to learn when I first arrived in Washington. I had served three terms in the Texas legislature and had risen to be speaker of that body, but... There were things in Washington that I had never encountered before. Republicans, for instance. Well, I'm exaggerating a little bit. We did have a few closet Republicans down in a little silk stocking area in Dallas. Still do. They are propped up by this little rag called the Dallas News, which enjoys the hell out of insulting me. It calls itself an independent Democratic newspaper. What that means is it's a goddamn Republican newspaper in a Democratic state. That reminds me of something that happened a couple of months back. Republican candidate for Congress in the Dallas district, a real son of a bitch by the name of Bruce Alger, was proclaiming the grandeur of the GOP when some old boy hollered, Hooray for the Democratic Party! Why are you a Democrat? Alger demanded. Well, said the old boy, my daddy was a Democrat. And suppose, Alger asked, your daddy was a horse thief. Well, in that case, I'd be a Republican. Well, those money boys down in Dallas got Alger elected anyway. And this past election, he held a rally with a bunch of these rabid, book-burning women out in front of the Adolphus Hotel in Dallas, where Lyndon and Ladybird were holding a fundraiser. When Lyndon and Ladybird arrived, those crazy Republicans spat on them. They spat at Ladybird Johnson, who is one of the finest women I know. Later on that day in a speech, Bruce Alger called Sam Rayburn and Lyndon Johnson traitors to this country. Sometimes I wonder what Abraham Lincoln would think of some of these people running around calling themselves Republicans. 
Don't get me wrong. Over the years, I have had a great many friends on the other side of the aisle. But the longer I serve in Congress and the more actions of the Republicans I see, I am prouder and prouder that I am a Democrat. A Democrat without prefix, suffix, or handle. Well, you may ask, if the Republicans are as bad as you say they are, then why do we need them at all? Well, you need Republicans to hold a balance on things and to get into office every once in a while to show how really bad they are. But when it comes right down to it, Democrats just naturally seem to know better than Republicans how to keep this country running right. And when I say that, I am speaking from experience. At the end of the Wilson administration, the American people were just fed up with the sacrifices demanded by the First World War, and they did something which they sometimes do when they are feeling tired and fed up, which is to elect a bunch of Republicans to office. For the next 12 years, under Presidents Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover, the Republicans were in power, and I was a member of the minority party. Then, along about 1929, the Republicans made a problem for themselves they just couldn't fix with that old trickle-down theory. You know, ever since I came here, the Republicans have been saying that if they make the rich very rich, it will trickle down on the other classes. Truth is, when the rich get richer, what they trickle down on the poor man is not money. After the stock market crash, Herbert Hoover and the rest of his Republicans didn't know whether to spit or wind their watches. Now, Mr. Hoover was a good engineer and a good man on a team, but not a good man to be captain. He and his advisor, Mr. Mellon, kept saying that prosperity was right around the corner. Then they looked up at the sky and waited for that trickle. Well, it came all right. It came in the form of a thunderstorm named Franklin D. Roosevelt. Now, some people have said that I was not a New Dealer. They are wrong. I was one hell of a New Dealer. When Franklin Roosevelt took office, I took the powerful position of chairman of the Interstate and Foreign Commerce Committee. I was in on the boarding of almost every major piece of legislation in the New Deal. I didn't get much credit, but that's fine with me. Let the other fellow get the headlines. I'll take the laws. The first bill in the New Deal program to come through my committee was the Truth and Securities Act of 1934. At that time, the stock market was full of these securities that weren't worth the paper they were written on. People were losing their life savings to these Wall Street desperados, and Roosevelt wanted it stopped. Now, my theory is that legislation should never be passed to punish, but to bring about justice. So, in the name of fairness, I called a hearing to let the Wall Street boys speak their piece. Now, some of Roosevelt's Harvard fellows were worried that this old farmer wouldn't be able to handle all those fancy Wall Street lawyers, especially when they heard that old John Foster Dulles himself was coming to town. Well, he came, and I whipped his ass. Mr. Dulles, Mr. Dulles, if you would just... If you would just allow me to interrupt you for a minute. Thank you, sir. Could you please read that particular section of the bill to the committee? The section whose harmful effects you were just discussing. Yes. Would you please find it and read it to the committee? Oh, you can't seem to find it. 
Well, look hard, Mr. Dulles. You were just talking about it, so it must be in there somewhere. Oh, it's not in there. The section of the bill which you were criticizing does not actually exist. I see. Have you actually bothered to read the bill, Mr. Dulles? Well, I'm afraid a quick glance is not going to do, sir. If your accusations are going to hold any weight, I would suggest you do your homework in the future. The committee will recess until such a time as the witness for Wall Street has actually read the bill in question. Well, we won that vote and several others in what I like to call the fight for economic justice, but we were not without our setbacks. I hate like hell to get whipped, and I did later on in that same year. The president brought forward a bill to regulate utility companies, and I sponsored it. When the utility companies heard about it, they hired an army of lobbyists, more than one per congressman, and spent millions of dollars to defeat that bill. My office was flooded with mail. I received 100 letters from the small town of Denison alone. My staff and I worked overtime to answer every single one of those letters, and of the hundred from Denison, 52 came back marked, Address E. Deceased. They had taken names off of gravestones and out of phone books. They paid people to solicit signatures and forced their employees to write in. They cheated, bribed, and lied, and they defeated that bill. I almost lost my faith then. But the facts came out. There was an investigation to all the irregularities, and when the truth was told, the House reconsidered the bill and passed it by a very large margin. I may not have gotten much attention in the papers for all the work I did in those days, but my colleagues began to take careful notice. I began to feel optimistic about my lifelong ambition of becoming Speaker. The Speaker Speaks is presented by Jarrett Productions. To help us continue producing work of this kind, please consider making a donation at jarrettproductions.com. Written by Clay Nichols, The Speaker Speaks was adapted and performed by David R. Jarrett and produced by Will Douglas. Sound design, mixing, and editing by Craig Brock. Technical assistance provided by our friends at Make Every Media. Additional support from Natalie Garcia, Carlo Garcia, and Aaron Shalaba. This audio theater presentation is based upon the Public Domain Theater Company's 1999 stage production of The Speaker Speaks, An Evening with Sam Rayburn, directed by Robbie Polgar. If you would like more information on Jarrett Productions, including past and future shows, visit our website or follow us on social media. For more from Mr. Sam, check out our third and final installment, available now.